The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. If you haven't turned the show off yet, here's Brandon. Happy Halloween week. Today is the 26th, but nonetheless, welcome back to the Brandon Peters Show. On today's episode, we're going to be talking John Carpenter's 1980 film, The Fog. And joining me for discussion, hold on, let me unspool this roll of an introduction I have here, a producer a director, a writer, the man behind Reverend Entertainment, host of the Justin Beam Radio Hour. His written work has been featured in Fangoria, Famous Monsters of Filmland, Delirium, Horror Hound, and Scream Magazine, a moderator and MC of conventions as well as commentary tracks, host of film festivals, uh, but maybe, most importantly, he's one of the kindest, most thoughtful, and inspiring humans on the planet. Welcome to the Brandon Peters Show, Justin Beam. Oh my God. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on, man. I, I loved our last conversation that we had on your, on your other show. And thank you. You're a busy guy. I'm thrilled you're taking the time. And like you said, you appeared on my last show one time. We had a couple, not ha- like false starts on a couple of them, but uh, we discussed Silent Night, Deadly Night on that one, which I yeah. found funny. Nine months after that, you were announced as doing the bonus features on the Scream Factory Collector's Edition of that film. Yeah, and it was it had nothing to do with my show because you before that you spearheaded a re-release of that film, a few right? I, before, yeah, I was part of the the, the theatrical re-release. Yep, just, you're like the Silent Night, Deadly Night guy, I guess. So, too, <laughs> it's become that with well, which is <laughs> well, it was Halloween I, I, at one point, and <laughs> yeah, and and then it's Christine too. I was just talking oh, yeah, with my friend right, Bill, right. my friend Bill, who owns the car, one of the cars from the movie, you know, that I've mm-hmm. done a couple of things with over time. We were talking about that today, about this crazy history of being attached to certain movies like that, and they move around with you. And really, it's kind of how we carry them in life. These movies have offered me so much over the years. You revisit them time and again and spend so much time with those characters. And in a way, it's really exciting then to, like you said, with Silent Night, for example, have the chance to give that back in a way to the people who made the movies, to the people who were part of their original creation. And that was a thrill, that one. And then I did, then we did part two a year later, Silent yeah. Night, Deadly Night 2 for Shop Factory. And so, yeah, it just keeps on rolling. I think it's a great party movie, too. Like, you watch that with a group, people love it. Like, yeah. It's, there's, it, I mean, good vibes. It's like a mixtape. Yeah. The first film with the new stuff from the second <laughs> one that is even, that's in a completely different world than the first movie. So, right. yeah, it's a, it's a very specific, unique experience. You don't get stuff like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, we talked that. And we also talked about uh, the Justin Bean Radio Hour, which is still going, still a terrific mm-hmm. program. Well, thank you. Uh, which thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to be snagging a shirt soon. It's like that thing that I always like, I'm going to go, and then I forget. But now <laughs> it is, because uh, you have an awesome logo, my friend. Oh, that, yeah. That's that's my friend Kevin made that. Okay. Kevin Spencer did the original logo. And then there's Jeff O'Neill, who runs Midwest Monster Fest. He's the one who mm-hmm. printed the t-shirts for me with a little variation on it, which has been a lot of fun 
So thank you for looking into that. I, I look forward to that. And then we talk about some of your other backgrounds, but today, and because I have a program as a segment of this called 4K Blues Day, I wanted to kind of focus on Reverend Entertainment, which every year I feel gets bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and for people who might not know if they're not on the 4K Blues Day tra- train, it's your company that makes supplemental material for DVD, Blu-ray, and now 4K Ultra HD. You're you're yeah. there. It really began back around 2009. The first couple of Blu-rays that I produced stuff on were for Halloween 4 and 5. Mm-hmm. And that was, Reverend wasn't really a thing at that point. And then gotcha. it moved on from there to Michael Felsher, the icon, mm-hmm. like the icon in the game, yeah. like the greatest, right? He brought me on to, to help on a couple different releases of his. And that's really where my seed for Reverend was planted. And then once I got on with Shout and started doing like Tank Girl, from Tank Girl forward is where Reverend was really born. Okay. And since, so I, I can't remember what year, that may have been like 2010 or 11. It's all like, like way too far or way too, it seems yeah. too close and is actually really far. Yeah. Or vice yeah. versa. Where, where did the name Reverend come from? That's actually a pretty weird story. Years ago, I wrote for some weekly newspapers in uh, Illinois, where I lived at the time. Okay. And I was the assistant editor for a, a few weeklies. And ha- hang in there with me on this. At some point, a, a, a regional professional wrestling group w- invited me to come to one of their shows to cover <laughs> it. Okay. And so I was like, oh, great. And that sounds like a blast, right? I grew up loving wrestling when I was a mm-hmm. kid. I had been out of it for a while and then got back in and then sort of moved away from it anyway. So they asked me to come cover one of their events and I'm like, Oh, that'd be amazing. And they invited me to this meeting of everybody who's a part of it. So all the different wrestlers, the managers, the guys who run it. And then I went to this thing. It was in the back room at a Denny's and, <laughs> yes. and they were all so great. And, and I walked in and I'm, I'm like six, two, I'm not, I'm not huge, but I, I mean, I don't know, a little bit of height. I don't know. They, but they were like, oh, man, you're a little taller. We would, You're a little bigger. Would you want to be in the show, be in this next event? The one that I was to be covering. And I'm like, well, doing what? And they said, well, you can wrestle. And I'm like, well, no, I can't. I can't. I can't at all. I'm the clumsiest person you'd ever. I'll probably murder somebody in there. Oh, we'll work with you. We'll figure it out. And anyway, long story, medium length. I ended up creating this character called the dead reverend. And I came up with this because we, we, before we were recording here, you and I were talking about how you and I both have this habit of here, as I'm doing right now, loquacious, <laughs> just like long stories and stuff. Right. So they said, come up with a character. And I've always loved Salem. I love the whole world of witches, witchcraft, and all of that. And the Salem witch trials. And so I came up with this character of this guy who was falsely accused of being a witch gets, burned and then buried and comes back from the dead and he's a reverend so he's a dead reverend so they wanted some simple character like show up and i could have been like a garbage man i could have walked <laughs> in with a fucking garbage can and been like i'm garbage mike or something but instead i send them this like five paragraph diatribe this super in-depth backstory about this character that would never have any kind of they're not going to play this whole thing out right. anyway the bottom line is Reverend Entertainment was born out of the character of the dead Reverend who wrestled three times. I ended up having two events after that first one. Oh, wow. And, and I'm undefeated and I've <laughs> put people through tables and hit them with chairs. And I have to say it was a total blast. But that actually stuck with me over time that the character, I've always wanted to do something with it. 
In fact, there's some concept art up there. There was a, an artist that w- wanted to do a comic book, team up on a comic book at one point that didn't end up happening. But I've always hung on to that art. And it's just one of those weird experiences I've had that I've carried forward in some way. And now it is in the form of reverend entertainment. So wow. it has nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with, it's just my own little weird thing. And that's a story that I don't know that I've ever told anywhere. So Oh, excellent. I... Uh... <laughs> I look. You have the book for the dark, gritty origin tale of the dead Reverend too. Yeah, right. So yeah, right. Can... And we're all growing constantly too, and that's the yeah. thing that I have to like with Reverend. I've been so fortunate to work with some awesome friends and editors over the years, and mm-hmm. while I was learning how to do the more hands-on aspects of the editing and all that, and now I'm doing pretty much exclusively editing my own stuff. And it's been such a rewarding process to learn that and to have learned it with my friends. It got me to expand. It forced expansion within me as the company was growing. It just had to happen. So I now look at the earlier work that I was doing and and it is very different than the stuff I'm doing now in some ways, but I'm so proud of all of it and so honored. and, And I love the people that I've been able to work with all the while that I've been doing it. So that's part of both of our processes is growth, right? Constant yeah, growth. Yeah. Every, everybody's process is all about growth. And I'm just really honored to continue having the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And you, I mean, you should be proud. I mean, you've been able to have your hand on telling the story and being a, a part of the you know continued legacy through home video of some of your favorite films, like horror films and stuff we grew up with. But I mean, what's it like when Shout Factory comes to you and is like, hey, uh, Justin, here's The Deer Hunter. I... I was, I didn't even know what to say. I mean, (laughs) that movie, that movie, it, there aren't even like me wasting breath on it is, is going (laughs) to underserve this thing. There's nothing I could say. I was so, so incredibly honored. And it was an amazing experience to, to be a part of that. And it was their first 4k release too, which actually, yeah. At the point where I got hired for it, I wasn't even aware that that was going to be the fact. I was just oh. beside myself with excitement about John Savage, for example, and yeah. Ratanya, and getting to tell these stories of these folks for this incredibly celebrated, important cornerstone film. And then once I found out it was going to be the first 4K, I was, I mean, it was like it all washed over me again. At that point, everything had been shot and turned in and done. But to, yeah, to be a part of that. And that was the first one that I was cutting together myself. Actually, oh, okay. Deer Hunter was the first thing that I was that I cut. And so you can see the rudimentary beginnings of what I was doing on that. But just a, just a huge honor. And then on to things like with Paramount, too. Yeah, the Paramount. When, when, that's, when that began, I just still can't, I still pinch myself. I still can't believe it. And as that continues to roll on, as, as I'm working on, you know, they bring another title to me and I'm just like that movie. Like, are you kidding? And got like Eddie Murphy stuff now, right? That's well, coming. yeah. The next up <laughs> is big trouble in little China just is now open for pre I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm um, golden child. Golden. Wait, and I said big trouble because it was I, thought so I was like, wait, are you saying something that we don't know about? Yet? Well, no big trouble. I did what a year ago. Well, yeah. Yeah. And what was crazy yeah. is during the interviews for that, Everybody was talking about how the Golden Child is being shot simultaneously with some oh, sim- okay. similar Eastern elements involved with it and, and with mythology, Eastern mythology and stuff like that. And it shares a lot of actors between the two as well. And 
so it was so weird to be telling the big trouble story one year and then a year later here i am shooting or, or cutting stuff for golden child which was just incredible but each title they bring it's just another pinch myself moment of I can't even believe it. And they haven't announced. There's a lot of stuff in queue, obviously, that hasn't been announced yet that I can't wait to put up and share. But man, it's been such a thrill. Such yeah, a it thrill. was exciting when you announced that you were part of the Paramount Presents and all that. And and it felt great because I trust what you're doing with it. It's like in good hands, but also that a big studio is reinvesting in physical media. Huh. Yeah. That was yeah. a relief. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a golden age right now for collectors. It's this rare moment where there are studios starting to pay attention to this again, while smaller labels like Vinegar Syndrome and Scorpion and Ronin and these guys can survive doing limited runs of things and these great special editions. Mm -hmm. Collector's sets, like Vinegar has it nailed when you think about how they market their stuff and their their sales. own Black Friday. Like there's nobody as excited. Like I live for that sale. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they're packaging the limited edition slips. I mean, I I will, even if I had never purchased or heard of them prior to it, them putting Bloodhook out, I think it was two years ago, they put Bloodhook out. Yeah. That that movie has been, my my buddy Jake and I, it's one of our favorite shared movies in the the whole universe. Mm -hmm. And that's one that is on the list that I would certain would never get any kind of celebration on Blu-ray. <laughs> and then when they announced it and this got features and this, the transfer looks great. It's got scenes. Yeah. It's completely uncut. I had no right, idea yeah. there were extra scenes <laughs> and it looks amazing from front to back. So yeah. it, it, it is this moment where you have Paramount presents pulling archival titles that are not obvious, like the haunting, mm-hmm. like Jan de Bont's the haunting, for example. Right. And you have them willing to do that. On the other side of the spectrum are companies that are pulling these fringe titles out and giving them love because ultimately every movie is someone's favorite for the most part. And every movie certainly had a a hell of a lot of hard work and love poured into it. And I think that they're worthy of that because every film has an audience. And Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to just designate these collector's edition type label for giant titles, big names, big directors. Yeah. I do a annual piece at Why So Blue that's my Blu-ray wish list, which is like, next year, these 10 titles, please, or something like that. Just yeah. to, I've been doing it since I since I started there, like seven years ago, and it's just been a, you, did you realize this isn't on yet? Kind of, kind of idea. And then I check them off every year and see what my score is or how I'm doing with things that have come out. And I nowadays, I mean, with how things have gotten, I don't even care. Like the two Jakes finally came out this mm-hmm. called the Chinatown. Yeah. And it's just, it, it was just kind of a, well, we're putting it out release, but Hey, I'm fine with that. It's out. <laughs> it's on Blu-ray. Yeah. I used to be like, where are the bonus features? And now I'm, yeah. some of them like, Hey, we got it. It came. It's in high definition now. That's, that's right. good. Are you in any sort of spot with acquisitions at all? Or do you just, you get your assignments and, and go, or do you get a, get in someone's ear? Yeah, I kind of do both. Most of what I do is the second, the latter, where they come to me with the title and say, would Mm -hmm. you like this one or we would like you on this one? But there have been some that I've taken to companies. Like the first was Sleepaway Camp that I took to Shout Factory. And Silent Night, Deadly Night actually was another one where the producers, I had had that theatrical experience with them. Several years later, their deal with Anchor Bay was up and they're like, we want to find a new home for this, but we don't know where to go. And so we started talking about what they were looking to do with it. 
And that's how I ended up getting him into Shout Factory's hands. Okay. And Body Bags, John Carpenter was another one that John oh. owned outright and was just kind of sitting on and had been really disappointed with how Showtime handled the initial release of the film. And then I you know, brought everybody to the table at Shout, brought him to Shout Factory and got everyone together on that one. And most recently that I just finished and was just announced as Haunt, the film from my friends, uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods. Oh, yeah, yes. That came out on just a bare bones DVD and VOD through Shudder, mm-hmm. which was great. But the film really has a big audience, I think, that needed to get the movie as it should be seen. You know, really receive the the kind of packaging and love that that, that kind of a movie deserves because... When I saw it just land on DVD and it was hardly available anywhere, I was like, oh, man, this needs a home. And so finally, we found that at Ronin Flicks, to name this yeah. one of the companies I mentioned earlier, where they were willing, not only wanted to do it, but wanted to go all out and do poster reproductions and enamel pins, magnets. Oh. And then the, the thing kept growing. So Scott and Brian and I just put together a wish list of what we wanted to include with it. And we started creating the special features. They pulled in some archival stuff. I shot pretty much the whole cast and some crew and did the the new 30-minute documentary for it. We have a new commentary. And then crazy things happen, like uh, the score for that was done by Tom and Andy. They agreed to let us release the score exclusively as a part of this box Mm -hmm. set. So there's a second disc that's the Tom and Andy score. And then Andy allowed was cool with being interviewed, too, which... I've been such a huge fan of theirs since the days of like killing Zoe and stuff years Mm -hmm. ago. Yeah. But that's an example of one where I took it to a label trying to find a home. And I approached a couple of different distributors until I found someone that seemed to be the right fit for it. And then we were able to give that movie what it deserves, you know, give it the kind of love that it deserves. I think Rodin's a pretty good company too. From my ordering with them, they're really fast. Everything's packaged really they got the little they got cool little ways of advertising like I got a matchbook one time you opened it up and it was oh, yeah. releases yeah in there that was pretty neat yeah they're they're super fans they're that that's how the first conversation began about haunt they're like well first of all mm-hmm. we love this movie and I was like thank you okay like this is good <laughs> this is a good start yeah don't say the word but don't say the word but yeah 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 yeah, yeah. now what's a typical disc start to finish like for you they do you ever have where they're like here's a list of them pick what you want or you know you said they get they're like here we want you to do this do you ever have to bid against other supplemental companies or so the distributor whoever it is the distribution Mm -hmm. company will usually just reach out to me and i'll have an executive producer contact inside the company who works Mm -hmm. with me they'll sometimes send a list i've only had that happen a couple times they might have two or three that they give me all at once with the due dates. And then I schedule things out accordingly for mm-hmm. that. Like this year has been completely insane with that. The, actually last year and this year, have both been just out of control where titles were stacked oftentimes two or three at a time, sometimes yeah. at, at 1.4 or five at a time. And I try to work with the various labels and create a schedule. So I'm not ever, painting myself into to a corner and schedule. Mm-hmm. Then I usually will have two or three months to work on stuff, get everything put together. I will send them a list of ideas or people that I've, or I just start reaching out to people. And some, some labels are more lax on this, like chill than others. When you're working with the studio, they need to approve whoever's going to be involved. 
when you're working with someone like an independent, they're typically like, yeah, just whoever you can get. And then I send them a list of who's confirmed when I'm shooting them, if it's going to be an on-camera or commentary. And they may say, um, let's not do this person or let's see if we can get a few more people or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But and then it just becomes a back and forth over the course of those months as I'm recording and editing things, turning them in and work through to the end. So typically, though, it's about a three to four month process on a title. Are there any releases that came out and there was like one little thing that you wish you could have got on there and it just didn't happen? Are there any that linger in your mind ever or oh, just usually? Totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, first of all, great heartbreak. When I got on with Shot Factory and I found out they were doing Night of the Demons mm-hmm. and I was so bummed because not only do I love the Night of the Demons films, but I had done this huge, one of the first things that I wrote, actually, it's what got me in the door years ago at Fangoria, Chris Alexander. I came in at the same time as him. He brought me on board with his mm-hmm. regime, I guess you could say, at Fango. And I wrote this, here we go back to that loquacious point about earlier completely ridiculously bloated piece on the night of the demons franchise one two and three mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't i don't think yeah the remake may have been out but i didn't include okay. that but i i'm not kidding i think for that piece i probably interviewed 20 some people for oh, wow. one gigantic three-part article and no place has like no one yet has to print this thing because it's just so massive but anyway through that i met kevin tenney the director oh, yeah, yeah. and i had all these behind the scenes photos that no one had ever seen before. And I had contacts already with everybody cast and crew. It was nuts, but I had never mentioned that to shout. And then they announced that they were doing night of the demons. And I'm like, Oh, can I? And they're like, it's already in someone's hands. I'm like, Oh man. So that, that was a bit of a bummer. But in terms of my own projects, I think the, a couple of the, those that, that stung the worst when I was working on Willard, the mm-hmm. Crispin Glover film. I'm a huge Crispin Glover fan. And I had, yeah. in, I had interviewed him years prior for Fango for a huge, it was a two part career spanning discussion. That was great. I really enjoyed our conversation. And he and I were talking about, he wanted to be part of this new Willard disc mm-hmm. and he was overseas buying a castle or something. And, <laughs> and, and he got stuck That's over him. there in the, yeah, in the real estate negotiations. And so it came down to like the week before shooting we're emailing and he said, I just, I, I don't know that I'm going to be back by Christmas, which was everything had to be done by Christmas. And he's like, I just, I'm, I'm not going to make it back. And it sucks because I wanted to do a separate piece just on him and his art, just on him and yeah. his books, his own films. Of course, Willard touch on that, but there's already commentary and stuff of him on that anyway, that we ported forward. But I really wanted to make a celebration of Crispin because I, I think that that's long overdue in this world. And I had his dad, Bruce on board who Bruce is, is one of the most amazing and wonderfully entertaining people mm-hmm. in the world. If you don't follow Bruce Glover on Facebook, you need to, because okay. it's a completely <laughs> unreal experience. He would call me at like two in the morning and he'd be like, <laughs> he'd be like, Justin, this is Bruce. And I'm like, Hey Bruce, I, I hope you're a vampire like me. Clearly you are. Cause you answered. Okay. And then we start talking and he just starts telling me stories about all this crazy stuff. And he was so excited to, he's like, I have old art that Crispin made when he was a kid and we can use that. You can come and shoot my art. And it was all just going to be so, I was so excited, but it ended up not being able to happen because of Crispin and his schedule and his castle. So 
that was one of them that sucked. You could have put it on the new Friday the 13th set, right? <laughs> I actually thought about it and I wrote to him yeah. trying to, because I have the audio from my interview with him for Fango years ago. Mm-hmm. And I had reached out to him on doing something for the set and I didn't hear back. Gotcha. Now I know he was shooting this movie called The Smiley Face Killers. So he was busy on that. But then I wrote to him saying, okay, maybe can I just, can I get you to sign off on the audio from my interview with you? And then I can just make it an audio thing. Mm-hmm. And I never heard back on that either. So I tried for, for those looking at the Friday segment, <laughs> where's Crispin? I tried, but in that piece, in that article, which I have also put on my website in it, like the full transcript of my conversation with him is on the website. He does speak to Friday the 13th. He talks about his oh, experience okay. on part four. He talks about shooting the whole thing, the reverse shooting, yeah. you know, he tells the whole story and talks about how fun it was to be a part of that movie. And so it's, it's out there. The story's there. It's just in print in Fango and in, on my site. So I tried. I, that's what I always say when people, I'll, I'll see comments when a special features are released. What is it? So-and-so on there. Why? It's like, it's not for them not trying. Trust me. Yeah. They, they usually leave no stone unturned. Like, yeah. Not everybody wants to do these things. That's true. I had Kevin Dillon for the blob. We were talking and talking. Mm-hmm. I had him scheduled twice and both times he had to shift. Oh, I can't do it that day. And now then all of a sudden he was gone. He was on a big on a trip somewhere, but he'd be back the following week. And so it kept getting bumped around. And then we ended up, we came to deadline and he had ne- he never said no. And he was totally on board. But mm-hmm. for whatever reason, his schedule kept shifting. And that's happened a number of times where it was like with Brad Dorif that happened on Graveyard Shift. Oh. It's it's happened with with a number of people where they say yes, they want to be a part of it, but then just life prevents it from coming around. And, but we're certainly do think, trying. Do you think right now with how the world how the world's been and shifting to Zoom calls and such that the doors open a little better for some people to actually maybe do it or maybe contribute? Yeah, I think so. I do. I think this moment is doing a lot for this side of things because people are, are people being the audience are a lot more understanding and forgiving. I've mm-hmm. been looking at it, encouraging people to consider this as sort of a time capsule. Oh, that yep. must've been during COVID or when COVID first started. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is we're all in the same boat. Yeah. So the audience can't just look and say, Oh, they didn't try because they, what they know is that the reason the video and the audio is this is because that's the only way that we could safely do it. So Mm -hmm. I have found that it does simplify things in some ways, Mm -hmm. but we do suffer quality wise. But yeah, I completely do think you're right in that. It's opening doors to people who are suddenly okay with this because they're in the comfort of their own home. Mm -hmm. It's on their schedule. They don't have to travel. There's no crew and all the big hubbub around it. A lot of people are private and they just prefer that. I've hired crews all around the world before to shoot stuff. So it's certainly cheaper to do it through Zoom. But in the mm-hmm. end, I, 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 the ultimate purpose is to deliver the best quality right. as I can. And so, yeah. Well, caught my attention when you had Isaiah Washington on the ghost ship Blu-ray. Yeah. I was like, whoa, okay. And then I saw that he was doing it on his phone. But I was like, he, he doesn't seem like the type that would come back for that. But doing it there, I'm like, well, maybe he was more like, yeah, if I can just do a couple minutes on my phone, then cool. Yeah, he was open to in-person interview. Oh, okay. As, as well, but well, we just, well, no, but we can we couldn't. It was yeah. it was just too soon. That was too early. Right. All this. Oh, yeah. Ghost Ship was a title that I was really concerned about because Thirteen Ghosts, which came right before it, 
I had mm-hmm. been I had been working ahead of the schedule on that one. So I had everything done and in with plenty of time. COVID hit after I already had all that stuff finished. And so that title was secure, complete, I guess you could say, where Ghost Ship was very much in production from A to Z during COVID. Okay. And so that one, I was like, Jesus, how am I going to get anybody? But I luckily had Steve, the director of 13 mm-hmm. Ghosts and Ghost Ship. We already broke the ice with the commentary on 13 Ghosts. Right, yeah. So he was cool with a long distance commentary on Ghost Ship. But then the others, it became like, oh man, I was excited to get Gil Adler, the producer uh, in LA, because I had one day of yeah. shooting a few interviews out there and he was part of that, which went well. And we were COVID safe and distanced and sanitized, hands-free, the whole thing. But the others I had to do remotely and it worked out okay. And I, again, I think people are looking at it, understanding that it's just a product of the times right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's appreciated just seeing it. I mean, quality, I mean, quality can be understood, but it's content that's still there. I've seen old stuff ported over from conventions, including on disc, yeah. included on disc. That's like worse quality, but people well, are like, yeah. oh my gosh. Those cutscenes so, on Friday too. People, right. Yeah. You, it didn't matter what the source was on those. People have been wanting so long to see Give them. Give it to me. Yeah. yeah. And when Edwin and his partner, this other gentleman found that stuff and put it on there, I think people, they're just thrilled to see it. I mean, just thrilled mm-hmm. to see it. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's the content that ultimately counts. It's the stories that count and the people that count. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not going to remember the surround mix. We're going to remember the emotional experience of watching the film. Yes. And it's no different in interviews. Real quickly then, since I, I asked about ones that didn't go right, what are there any tiles that have just gone smooth sailing start to finish of yours or do they all hit their obstacles and stress Yeah, yeah well, not really. Yeah. <laughs> some of them I start going and then I have a hard time stopping myself on like big trouble was one of those big trouble in little China. Yeah. And I I so love that movie. I I so love that movie, but I've been disappointed that historically a lot of, I mean, really the non-Caucasian actors in that cast have been pretty much ignored. And the non, I mean, as much as I love Kurt Russell, Kim, as long as I, I adore them, the story is everyone around them. Yeah, that, that really make that thing work. And so with that one, I it became a bit of a personal mission to bring as many people as I could in who had never been included with this film before, but were instrumental in it. So on that one, I completely went into the red financially and shooting stuff. And it, it has a ridiculous number of interviews and stuff on it. And everyone's story was so rich and I loved them all. And I, I could have cut them down. I've heard criticism that people were frustrated with the duration of some of those interviews on that thing but i'm like if you get carter wong in to to agree to doing an interview and he gives you that time like he's a legend carter wong's just an (laughs) example of someone who's an absolute legend when they give you that time celebrate them show them the respect of going through their career and, Mm -hmm. and 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 even if it's not featured anywhere else let them tell their full story. And so that was my purpose mm-hmm. with the with those interviews on that disc. And I was so happy with how it all ended up coming together. That was a great release. I, I mean, I remember when I had to, I, I did the review for it and get, I think it was two discs, right? Yep. And that second disc, I was just like, oh, that's a mountain. But I, by the time <laughs> I got into everything watching it, I was like, because it's different for me. I have to review it by a certain yeah. date in, in my mind. No one really gives me a date, but I'm like, I should get this up before release. Yeah. And 
you know, get your time. You have a stack, and you're like, oh, here comes a mountain. But by the end, I was really enjoying what they were providing. It was, yeah, it's good stuff. It's just that first sight of, oh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of ended up being the case on a number of these. But those, I'd rather have it there than not, though. That's the thing. Yeah, like that's a trailer, and then you know, I've been, I've come to the age where I'm like, oh man, they don't have a trailer now because I enjoy those vintage trailers. Mm-hmm. So I, I do. But no, I say I used to get bummed when a disc would just have a trailer, but now I'm like, ooh, a trailer. Yeah. <laughs> the if you get to the Terror in the Isles disc, the interviews on that were such a blast. But also there a bunch of trailers for the films that are in the in Terror in the Isles are also included there. And some of those oh, trailers awesome. are really rare. They're from a private collection. And so there's some that you hardly ever see, like the Halloween 2 TV spot that is very rarely ever seen, for example, is on there. Oh, cool. And there's some other things like that. So there's little things hidden around all these releases that give them a little extra something. Lastly, because we're supposed to talk about the fog. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, what's our, what's our situation with Martin Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead? Where are we at with that one? I know that's a... I have... That's, both you and I want that one out. <laughs> that, that has been on my pitch list since day one. There, there is that one. There, the Bloodhook used to be on there, but of course I knew no one would. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm trying, is what I will say. And I will... Right. I have nothing new to update on that on that front, but but I will say that's a discussion that I'm constantly having, and I definitely want it. It's long overdue, man. That Shadow of the Vampire. There are a number of oh, films yeah. that it's again we talk about neglecting some of these titles. Yeah. It's not intentional neglect necessarily, but I think that a lot of the studios are still kind of new to catching on to the home media thing. Yeah, outside of the mega releases, like the John Wick films, come with great packaging, nice extras, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. But the catalog titles tend to just sort of sit and collect dust. And I think yeah. that they're seeing through companies like Shout Factory, they're seeing that there is more in this. And the market mm-hmm. is much bigger than maybe what they had anticipated. So I'm hoping yeah. that at a certain point we can make Bringing Out the Dead one of those that comes out again. Right. I tend to I tend to tell people that talking about physical media dying, I'm like, it's not going to die. It's just... if at worst case scenario it's going to wind up being like vinyl is currently like for collectors special special things a lot more attention to each thing but i think at worst case that would be it i think it's going to just i think it's just going to be continuous format changes because it really it whether it's a reel or a cassette or Mm -hmm. a disc or if it's on a usb stick no matter that's people are going to want to own the things that they love one way or another Right. And streaming is convenient. It's nice, but even with Amazon, you don't really own it. You're, you're no. You buy it, quote, but then you pay rent to watch it. So yep. you can't. <laughs> it's like it's like having a room full of movies, and your landlord's like, "Not until you pay up, brother." And then you're yeah. like, "Okay, well, here's the rent for this month. Now I can go enjoy the movies that I also paid for." Here's the last Starfighter. You can watch it. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. can watch it unless we decide to not have that anymore. And so, anyway. Right. I I, uh, oh. I I just think it's something. It's just going to be an evolution to the format. One way or another, mm-hmm. we're going to be owning the movies we love for eternity. Yeah. And I think there will always be companies who want to give you a new content with them because we love all of it. It's a life. It's a lifestyle for right. us. It's as much as you get told there. it's dying, I'm like happier than ever nowadays with what's coming yeah. out. <laughs> like I'm like, well, if it's dying, then why am I so excited every month, every week when something gets announced? I'm like, oh. 
And especially like the vinegar syndromes, like I didn't know I need spider fly mutant eight. Gosh, yeah, I'm so right. excited for that one. What is it yeah. again? I'm buying it, but I, yeah, that's, that's the vinegar syndrome factor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that wasn't my last note. My last note was speaking of stuff that people might not know people wanted, but your monster go home commentary was one of the best commentaries I've flat out ever heard. That was oh, great. Oh, thank that was, you, man. I, I popped it on. I was writing my review. I was like, I'll have this on in the background. And then I took my computer. I was like, nope, I'm just going <laughs> to enjoy this oh. again with it. No, you have oh, like Rob you. Zombie geeking out about monsters and 60s television. You Butch Patrick, you got him painting a picture, the landscape of television at the time, which I don't think people talk about or understand nowadays. Yeah. Where it's like, there were no reruns. They had to run programming during dinner time. They had to, yeah. you know, and they had to run so many episodes. Like they didn't, it was different then. And that, that commentary actually paints a really accurate, good landscape of like how that time was. And I didn't expect that coming into that movie. And that commentary was just gangbusters. Oh just man. I, that really just means so much. That, that was such a personal, I, I was so excited to be a part of that. And originally shout didn't honestly have much plan for that release. They were going to mm-hmm. do both, the, both the movies because it's monster go home and then monsters revenge okay. as sort of a B side film on there, you know, but I'm like, no, I can, I can bring in Butch and I'm sure I can get Rob involved here. <laughs> and so, and I, so I, I, I messaged Rob and I was like, monsters go home commentary. You want to do it? And he's like, fuck you. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. He goes in, in like he's totally in no matter what it took he was totally on board and then i got butch too and he was so mm-hmm. jazzed and he had met rob years ago okay I, mean, I, I don't remember if it comes up in the commentary but he had met rob years ago when rob was in white zombie okay he, rob went and met butch at a convention or something like that okay. he's like well i remember that kid you know i remember him and so to see them get together again so That's it's the three great. of us we showed up at post haste studios in los mm-hmm. angeles and you, you pull up out back and there were little placards. It's like Butch Patrick, Rob Zombie, and then my name. And like, <laughs> how how undeserving is that? Like, uh, get mine. Just just I'll park in the street. That's where I need to be parking. But then uh, we we just had a blast, man. And it and it really was just me and Rob geeking yeah. out all over Butch. And um, I, I do want to say, as as an aside on that release, that there was a gentleman named Kevin Burns. He's a producer mm-hmm. in L.A. He He's behind like Ancient Aliens and a bunch of other series. He was instrumental in the materials that we featured on that disc. There was a bunch of never before seen photos. Like the photo archive in that disc is massive. And Kevin, he was gracious enough to allow us to use all that stuff. He had me up to his office and he was showing me all this footage that no one's ever seen before from like television special that they had done with the Munsters behind the scenes things on Munster Go Home. And Anyway, I, I mentioned all this just to say Kevin had just recently passed away. I think it was about oh. two weeks ago that he passed away, and it was a real sad loss. But yeah. that morning, before we recorded that commentary, I had gone directly from Kevin's office to the studio for Robin Butch to do that track. Much love to Kevin and, and all of that uh, for his assistance on that. And just wanted it to be known that he was a driving force behind that title being all that it could be. But um, um, yeah, that track, man sitting in that room with those guys it's like me on this side rob in the middle and butch over here and i have some pictures from the session rob's got his his reading glasses on because i had these (laughs) notes for everybody and it it was just such a hoot and then at the end we're all taking pictures it was uh, it was amazing it was so great thank you
Something is moving in the fog. Who's there? Something not quite human. Who is that? In Halloween, John Carpenter created a night of absolute fear. Now, he has conjured an evil so intense, not even the dawn can drive it away. The Fog, a study in unrelenting terror. Rated R. So, The Fog. It's directed by John Carpenter, written by Carpenter and producer Deborah Hill, starring Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, Janet Lee, Tom Atkins, Nancy Keys, Charles Cyphers, and Hal Holbrook, and behind the scenes, familiar faces like Dean Cundy, Tommy Lee Wallace, Kim Gottlieb, as well as introducing new ones in Rob Button. And Steve Johnson, which uh, the film tells a tale of a centennial anniversary of the coastal town Antonio Bay. Unfortunately for the locals, 100 years ago, six of their founders of their town deliberately sank the Elizabeth Dane so that its leprosy-afflicted owner, Blake, would not establish a leper colony next door. And these six also used the gold from the sunken ship to found their town. Now, in the supernatural fog at night, come the ghosts of the mariners from the Elizabeth Dane to claim the lives of six Antonio Bay residents as an act of retribution, but which six folks won't be on the census the following year. All right, The Fog. Justin, when did you first see The Fog? Um, it was really early. It was one of the first... Well, yeah, I, I didn't even realize that it was a John Carpenter film. Oh, okay. Uh, and the first time, because I was pretty young at the time, but I remember the box cover just seeming so terrifying because it, out of context, you don't think about what it might be, but it speaks to an experience we all have. We all open and close doors. Like it's <laughs> that Halloween feeling of, mm-hmm. the, you know, the monster being in the house. You don't have to go into the water to get it, whatever. Right. So I remember being terrified by the box and seeing it when I was pretty young. So maybe like 12, 13, something like that. And just one of the early experiences I had of atmosphere having such a loud voice on screen for me, because this, this film has so much to, it leans heavily on atmosphere, obviously. Mm -hmm. And this is the movie that really sold me on that can be the dominant voice in a film. And that can be enough to keep me returning to a a movie like this over and over again, even though this offers a lot more that we'll get into. But for, for me, that that was important for me at that time as I was exploring cinema to, to experience that. How about you? How old or when did you first encounter it? I first, so my first John Carpenter film was escape from New York, but I didn't know it as John Carpenter film. Mm-hmm. I was at a cousin's house. They had it on and I watched it. And then when I saw Halloween, he had his name above it. I'm like, well, this guy thinks he's something, you know, he's got John Carpenter's Halloween. So after seeing Halloween the first time, I believe I went to the video store and my local one, I was, you know, couldn't drive or anything. And mm-hmm. they didn't have Halloween 2. And I'm like, well, I am not moving forward with that. And I, and they had John Carpenter's The Fog was like nearby, F and H. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's that guy again. This is like, looks like it'd be his next film, like the years. So I was like, I'll pick up this. And that sold me on this guy's amazing. <laughs> like he, yeah. did it, he did the thrill ride for me twice, like in a row. It was pretty crazy this moody i i wasn't living on the coast or anything like that but once again like halloween like i could kind of feel it like where they were at the town it was on the coast but it felt localized a bit mm-hmm. to where like oh, yeah. anybody growing up could could enjoy it but man it was it was everything all over again and in a, in a good way and it's very similar and different to halloween at the same time like it's it brought all the great things from halloween while doing other things it, in 
truly, this is where I was like, okay, I am seeking out everything John Carpenter does. And then I'd seen a couple of them before, but didn't yeah. realize they were the John Carpenter film. Yeah. His time frame where he was teaming up with Dean Cundy. That's a, I, it's key. Yeah. It's so instrumental. I mean, Gary Kibbe is, is a different vibe. And mm-hmm. one of the things about Carpenter is that he, it seems as though he can work with anyone and make it magic, but there was something very, very special about his time with Dean and the fog Halloween, of course, these movies that they made together have something that is completely different from what his catalog would become after they kind of parted ways. And then he also had Tommy Lee Wallace. He had this little band of warriors with him. These, these friends, he carried his friends with him through his projects. The John Carpenter repertory theater. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you can kind of get, you can feel that from these movies. Right. Yeah. There's a certain comfort that seems to permeate everyone's performances and everyone's contributions. And I think that John sets the tone for that as the director, Mm -hmm. but also there's, there's a certain something when an ensemble of people get together the second time, the third time, the fourth time. And he'd known Tommy since they were little kids. Right. Like on that, on that big trouble disc that I, I, I had Tommy, yeah. the band, yeah, yeah. the Coupe de Villes. Coupe de Villes and, yeah. and, and you get to hear the, you know, how they grew up together. And mm-hmm. so, of course, you bring that guy with you. Of course you do. And yeah. The Fog is just one example of that. Well, I've, I've always, and I've said this for a long time, that this, to me, and the fellow Halloween fans can come at me, but I feel like this feels like the true sequel to Halloween. Like you said, mm. pretty much the whole crew comes back. You have most of the cast. It, you got the same kind of feeling. The ghost pirates feel like we had one killer last time. Now we got six pirate killers coming out. And Carpenter wanted the anthology route with Halloween, and he already had it here. If you change the date of this ceremony to Halloween night, you have Halloween to the fog instead of a centennial. And every night the yeah. fog comes in, and he's kind of got a little bit of that in his filmography, I think, with the Halloween, the Fog, Halloween 3, of course, that was the anthology, but I think you could fit in a way, I think Christine, even though it's a King property, and Prince of Darkness kind of feel like this could happen on a Halloween night or a terrifying tale of Halloween if you wanted to put together an anthology of horror with Carpenter's stuff. But the Fog feels like it's another tale of a Halloween night, but it's it's not Halloween night, but kind of feels that way to me. This portion of his career is a massive chapter book mm-hmm. it's it's an anthology book or you know a collection of short stories and there are themes with color each film has its own color scheme right and i've talked about it being different eras just looking at the color palette that he was choosing to work with but i completely agree I and mean, what you're speaking to with the commonality here is that that vibe yeah and i think part of the reason why it feels like halloween night is because it was all established with halloween yeah. And that that the majesty of that film is that it's any town and that it's a shared experience that we all have being kids in the US on Halloween night and spooky stories are built into that. So it's almost like if you look at his film catalog during this time, we start off the night trick or cuz how does Halloween night usually go with your friends? You get ready, mm-hmm. you go out, you go trick or treating, you come home and then you watch movie like you might watch the peanuts at first then you might then you get into some scary movies and you try to stay up as late as you can whatever it might be his film catalog kind of plays the same way you have halloween night you go trick-or-treating you do that and then you move on to the next thing and then it's like let's tell ghost stories and then it's like well yeah there's this mythology about that car down the street 
that I heard has some like it's haunted or something. And so that's that's an, an interesting concept that you have there, talking about this being in some ways a, a sequel mm-hmm. is really intriguing. And Jamie Lee too, of course. right? Yeah, Jamie Lee's back. Tom Atkins. This is where he earns his mustache. Is this film? Yeah. <laughs> He's so awesome. He man. is great. A lot of times when they make comedy movies, uh, I don't. I don't necessarily think a lot of them need sequels. Just get every the gang back together and do another comedy, you know, because yeah. like, comedy sequels can be a tough thing to, to handle. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just do an, an everybody back director, writer, the cast, you know, the important players, and let's let's do it again, but different different comedy. And that's kind of what you have here. Like, let's not do Halloween two. We do the fog, which you know back then sequels as a whole another story. It's not like mm-hmm. we see now where it's like oh. You have David Gordon Green wanting to do more Halloween movies yeah. rather than John Carpenter's like, I'm past this. We did that film. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He saw it as done after that first one. So Right. And yeah. you, you mentioned to the Cundy factor, which I see a lot of Italian influence in some of Halloween's look, the Fog's look. And then I feel like the Italians like, like his look that he was kind of seems influenced from them and they just knock it off all the way through the through the 80s with their their films and then you also have spielberg he takes an eye his films where he's not there start kind of like when you're in a house or something like that they start looking like carpenter's films mm-hmm. and even he even takes over cundy and puts him with zemeckis yeah. and he yep. even he even uses cundy for for films as yeah. well so i feel like spielberg had his eye on carpenter because i i see a lot of similar look in carpenter's films that i don't see in spielberg stuff till after Carpenter's kind of established. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Like look at Gremlins. It kind of looks Carpenter-ish when they're like, especially in the interiors of the house. Yeah. Yeah. And Poltergeist. Yeah. And I, Polter- yeah. Which I know produced, but yeah, I know I've talked a lot over the years about John, mm-hmm. but he is such a towering presence and it isn't just because he made these films, these horror films. It's also, he pretty much invented Synthwave. Right, yeah. There isn't a single band that I've read, and I, I'm obsessed with that music. I just absolutely love it. They all tip their hat to him in some way, whether it's in interviews or straight up musically, paying tribute to him in that. And a lot of people don't might they might lose sight of that, the fact that he was so hugely influential. And what's sad about that is that John, to some extent, when you talk to him, like the conversation we had for Fangoria years ago we did this career spanning thing discussion like when I ask him about looking back at his career he's like well I'm a guy who wanted to make movies got to make some movies never really got the girls um <laughs> and I guess and he's then he's like I guess I did okay like he, he does <laughs> there's this sort of but a lot happened to him after right. the thing and with yeah. the thing took his universe and shook it up and it was really never the same after that. There seems to be some part of him that still doesn't really understand how much he means to us and how much he's meant to cinema and music. I mean, I hate to cliche, but he was very ahead of his time. I don't think people understood a lot of what he was doing. And now these films that he lost potential jobs after they came out and things like that are heralded as like the things considered like his you know his best film now or like it's mm-hmm. got such a huge audience and to him that was a horrible experience afterward like there's scripts that he probably could have done that now ah, we're gonna go somewhere else i think he wanted to do firestarter right and then he was, he was going to be doing Firestarter, and, he was going, and then and, after and the, the studio thing, ditched like, him yeah 
yeah. which Firestarter but, feels very much like a John Carpenter knockoff film too. When you see yeah. It. yeah. Well, it was, and then, but that gave birth to the Columbia pictures and that, right. that gave us Christine, for example. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why Christine even happened. Why he took that gig is because yeah. all of a sudden he needs, he needs a gig and look at the magic he did with that. I mean, not right. to suggest at all that it was improvised at all, but I mean, that was not in the game plan, right? but yeah. he did something so special with it and everything he's touched all these titles, whether it's even Stephen King's work, his vision of it then is bigger and louder and more fantastic than Mm -hmm. in some ways the source material. And the same thing happened with the thing. When you look at that original short story and you look at what he did with that short story while paying homage to the film thing from another world at the same time, he's adding his own spin to these things and doing it with this confidence and this sort of punk rock bravado that only someone who is a true artist can come in with because i think a lot of directors might be intimidated by the scope of something like the thing yeah dealing with so many practical effects and all of that but he i mean in every single one of these situations the fog included he embraces it fully no matter what the situation is behind it or who's involved like it's just incredible how he can't help but make things his no, he's definitely, I mean, great. And there's like a, just a, a through line with this stuff, but it's all varied and different. And I, like, I see like, even in the fog here, I guess to bring it back to the fog. Sure. Uh, I see a lot of like seeds of what kind of might be Prince of Darkness later on. There's like the, yeah. the whole ensemble people in different places. I grant Prince of Darkness, they're all in one location, but it's kind of ensembles in different areas of that. Mm-hmm. help that play there and there's a kind of, kind of an energy i was feeling that was sort of there with prince of darkness as well well that goes back to assault on precinct 13 right I mean, yeah it's kind of been his thing he some of the stories are more personal uh, halloween is an ensemble piece that has mm-hmm. people separated but ultimately sort True. of coming together in some ways and you but then christine is a film that's very much about a young man in his, in his car yeah it's a love story there are some other people around it a couple Mm-hmm. But it's arguably the most intimate film that he ever made was Christine. The Fog is is somewhere in the middle of that. And the creature in this is not defined in the beginning. It's something that we don't really come to even see right. until we're, in, we're well into the film. And so the mythology is built around it before we even know. I mean, like, you know, the, the mythology is established early on behind the shipwreck and everything. But we don't know what that's going to turn into. There's nothing obvious about the fog. There mm-hmm. isn't. It's not a slasher film. Right. It's not a monster movie. It's not. It doesn't. It defies category because it's so many things all in one, but it plays out in a very organic sort of. I, I, I say mythology because mythology passes on the tongue from person to person, and it grows. It changes. Mm-hmm. It's shaped. And this film, the experience of watching this is very similar, where. You have a seed planted in the beginning. You have no idea what that could possibly grow into. And then often the thing unfolds before you. Right. And there's so much unexpected ac- activity yeah. and action in this thing. In one scene, it's this. And then in the next, it's this other thing. Like you don't yeah. know what, like, cause at the beginning it's a, it's like a poltergeist type thing where just yep. things shake glass shatters. It's kind of a welcome thing. And then we get like a attack on a boat and then you just, you have little weird things whenever the fog, it, all you know is whenever that fog rolls in, beware. Like that's pretty much, pretty much all you can expect and predict from the film. Like, yeah. Yeah. And one person who is the sort of 
the voice of it's not the voice of reason, but the but the the one who's who's slowly put piecing this thing together, even though it can't mm-hmm. really fully be pieced together, luckily has a voice through her radio show and right. trying to do right by people and trying to save lives while this thing is on. It's like moving through an area that has no idea what to do with it. Right. It's it's fascinating, man, and it's really a terrifying concept. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of the Adrian Barbeau's DJ character, one of my favorite movies moments ever in a Carpenter film is her walk to the lighthouse. Just the yeah. way he shoots that. The I mean, it's just it's gorgeous. And, and the I piano was, over it. Yeah. Yeah, I was when I was watching it in preparation for this again. I was thinking, like, if a Carpenter movie was in 3D, I might choose this one just because there's a lot of big scale things. You could have fun with the fog and the just the depth of field with the guys standing in it. Yeah. But that walk to the lighthouse. That's just gorgeous it's good photography from dean cundy and just really establishes her solitude out there very mm-hmm. well yeah cool idea to have the dj in the lighthouse too that's kind of a interesting concept and this yeah. is john showing like a big scale for the first time i think too like just the open areas driving down through the hills and things like that just mm-hmm. showcasing the while it's big it's a lonely empty coast with a lot of the fog rolling in and everything like that that's you mentioned the score, which is this one, would you consider maybe the first like of the stereotypical sounding John Carpenter scores? Do you think it comes here? Because there's a lot more, I don't know, like, there's stuff in Halloween, but this one's kind of got, feels like it confidently establishes this is John Carpenter, your st- stereotypical John Carpenter score. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I have to say, I, I mean, think that all, that all goes all back to Halloween. <laughs> and, and even yeah. when you listen to this, yeah. if, and I'm a score junkie, and I, I've had this on cassette and then on mm-hmm. CD, all the, I'm going to mispronounce the name of this label, Verisande Sarabande, that label, okay. however you pronounce it, that was putting out all the Carpenter stuff. And yeah. man, I just ate it up. But it began for me with Halloween gotcha. on, on cassette tape. And you hear themes from Halloween that are in a, a, everything after that. Right. So yeah, I, I really think that's that for me is where a lot of it was. I think maybe I just hold Halloween in this like own place too much. <laughs> that might be where yeah. where I'm coming from. But I, I do think the kind of the lighter theme on this kind of reminds me Exorcisty Phantasmy with the mm. not the less deep uh, synth driven sounds. Kind of has that kind of light flowing. But, but then it hits. With, yeah, with the moments of impact. Dun, dun. and it has this super so it's light piano with the with Mm -hmm. a constant and if you want to talk about a sister score think about prince of darkness because one of the amazing things about prince of darkness is that it has a it has a pulse yeah Mm -hmm. almost the entire film wall to wall it's like a constant pulse of that low end heartbeat Mm -hmm. underneath the entire film the fog has a similar thing okay so it has a similar heartbeat underneath it and it's so delicate on top and that's what makes it hit when when the impacts happen it's with the full-on piano then you have the synth layered on top of that and then you have the sound effect that kind of sound effect nailing at the same time as traditional score you want to consider it during the lighter moments I think I just think it, it speaks to a theme themes that John carries through his music in a lot of other ways too. Yeah. So I love this. I should just not talk about scores, but I like hearing <laughs> your take on it. I mean, everything is just there. Like this movie, if you talk about perfect movies, this one qualifies. Yeah. I think easily, just up and down. He gets to work with a couple, 
you know, he had Donald Pleasance in Halloween previously, but he gets Janet Lee and Hal Holbrook here, some vets to come here, mm-hmm. which I'm sure Jamie Lee got her mom to come on. Well, but what what it's a huge family. Oh, it's it didn't great. have to happen. I mean, no, like that's that that nod that and, and again connected to the Halloween universe if you want yes. to look at it that way too with H2O. But what yeah, novelty is right. What better mm-hmm. marketing could you have for this little thing than yeah. that? I mean, it's amazing. It's it's brilliant casting. Yeah, and Jamie Lee, she's against type here. She's like opposite Laurie Strode. I mean, she can't reject the the charm of Tom Atkins as that's always been noted on this film as a quick right. uh, quick turnaround to the bed. With, well, it's the same thing in Halloween three. Right? It's the same thing in every <laughs> every movie that he's in. Except lethal I mean, weapon. Yeah. It didn't work it's, out. He jumped out the window. There. <laughs> yeah, and maybe drive angry. I guess he wasn't maybe. too focused on getting laid in that one. So. Right. Carpenter himself shows up in the film at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Nice little Nice little nod there. Can I get my check now? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which he's probably saying to the studio, can I get my check check now? Yeah. 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 It's a lot of fun. Gotcha. And then uh, the end of this movie just, it's got that carpenter ending or whatever you want to say, but the way they shoot it, you don't see anything. It's just a swift movement, cut to black, and this awesome Foley sound effect of it. You assume Mm -hmm. his head gets chopped off. Pal Holbrook, that, uh, that just works masterfully. Yeah, you don't need everything handed to you. And this movie, mm-hmm. that's again, it, there's no conventional element really to this story. Mm-hmm. To, to any character's arc in this, nothing is conventional. And I love that it ends with that. And, and it makes it carry on in your own mind and your own, your walk out of the theater because it's invariably something we're all going to encounter at some point. It's some, you know, we're going to have a foggy night drive somewhere. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the de facto movie you're going to think about, right? Right. When, you, when you're doing that, so I like when those doors are left open. Just puts it back in the audience's lap and sort of shoves you out of the theater. Like, yeah. all right, here you go. No, I Deal with great. it. Yeah. <laughs> like his previous movie. Oh, the guy's still out there. This one. Oh crap! The, they got him. They got their six. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. Like most of the protagonists leave unscathed from the movie. Yeah. It's it's surprising. Like one of them goes, but the other. What the first five? They take out three really fast, and I think critics at the time were they didn't like the concept of the six. I'm like, that's more interesting because you're watching the cast thinking one of these or three up to three of these are people aren't going to make it through this film. Yeah, and then yeah, one. Well, that's what that that comes in on on atmosphere too because this is a movie that you can just Mm -hmm. even if you just have it on in the background as I'm doing something else, Mm -hmm. just the sound, the, the entire soundscape environment everything it, it's it's really a, a bit of a it's an audio symphony mm-hmm. but also visually it's so stunning to look at that uh, it, it's doing a lot for you even if it's not playing by con- by conventional rules with these characters or mm-hmm. a big roster of kills or a bunch of gore and stuff and i know they had mm-hmm. to add stuff later to spice that side of things up mm-hmm. it, it's really a testament to john and, and and the other person that we we really must address is deborah hill Right. Oh, yeah. Of course. Tremendous. I mean, when we talk about the Carpenter look, the Carpenter storytelling, and all of that, you, Cundy and Deborah, like Dean and Deborah and John, like that's the trifecta, right? That comes together to make this magic stuff happen, and she's so monumentally important to to who he was and who he became, and that's as an artist and a person, I think, and and as a person, I think. And so on display here as well. But yeah, just you, when you hit it right in the head, when you said a perfect film, 
Mm-hmm. I think the, the right team was back together and they did it again. To credit Deborah Hill and Jack Carpenter, I mean, this is after they're, they had broken up between Halloween and this. And yeah. the fact that they could still work together, like such pros and just yeah. continue to be like, they realize, it seems to realize that their, their purpose together was far more important than dating. You know, like they realized right. what they kind of had together. And that was, yeah, that's definitely, that's a trifecta for sure. And yeah. she was, insanely important to just not just carpenter but film in general through yeah. her career she's monumental yeah I, I saw a t-shirt the other day online that said mm-hmm. i think it said a deborah hill production oh okay. on the shirt or something like that i was like oh man i want that so bad That's i'm awesome. gonna have to get one of those it's so cool it's so long overdue Definitely. it's like it's like millicent patrick there are these people these voices that were so crucial and for whatever reasons at the time uh, just didn't get the the praise that mm-hmm. they deserved, and uh, so I'm, I'm glad that these stories are being told now about them. People like you giving the voice finally that we want to uh, hear. <laughs> I wish I could have met her. I wish I could have done something on her, man. Yeah. There should there needs to be a book written about her. I'll say that for sure. Yeah. Crucial Carpenter film, crucial uh, Halloween film. It's also one that's uh, year round. When yeah, I, I, I'm very much. Uh, when I'm in an, an emotional state, I like to watch a movie that ties to that. Or when there's weather that's relevant, I love to put the movie <laughs> on. So if I'm driving home after getting my son on the bus or whatever, I, I come back. It's a nice, thick, foggy day. Yeah. You're damn right. I'm grabbing the, the fog, putting that Scream Factory Blu-ray in. Another one I wish I could have worked on. But I, I never tire of this movie. This is one of those mm-hmm. titles. I have it memorized from front to back, pretty much. I can listen to it and, not, mm-hmm. and and know exactly what's happening on screen, and I never get sick of it. Agreed. And if your town's celebrating a 100th anniversary, just pop that thing in. It's perfect. Yeah, time. that's right. Definitely. What else? And in this segment, we just shine a little light on other media we're taking in recently or something we've recently put out in the world. So, Justin, what have you been into lately? One, one film that I highly recommend that, that, that I think is on Shudder, maybe on okay. Shudder now, is called Nina Forever. Okay. It's a, it's a great dark, I mean, I, I hesitate to even say dark comedy. It, does, it definitely has comedy elements to it, but it's about uh, a love, a very unusual love triangle. And it has some pretty gruesome moments, but it, it's, a, it's a fun film. It's wildly inventive. And it's got, it has such a great script and amazing performances. Nina Forever, and that just recently came out. So I've been really enjoying that. Brutal Massacre, Stephen Mana just put out mm-hmm. Brutal Massacre on Blu-ray. Okay. And so I, I just revisited that again. I love that movie so much. It's another comedy kind of a mockumentary that I treasure. I just got, speak, speaking, like Severin is another one of these labels. It's putting I out all this one. Yes. wonderful stuff. Oh gosh. Cruel Jaws finally landing. <laughs> I'm waiting at this point for the last shark to hit blue. Oh yeah. And, and, and if someone else isn't going to do it pretty damn soon, I'm going to start my own company and do it because there you go. the last shark needs to happen, which this movie borrows plenty of footage from this just showed up aqua slash about a killer <laughs> water slide or like a, a slasher <laughs> on a water slide. If we can't get blood beach on Blu-ray, we got <laughs> aqua. Yeah. I have yet to watch it, but that that's when I'm excited about okay. visiting soon. And then outside of that, I mean, you know, one of the unfortunate things of being so busy, I guess a good problem to have is I don't yeah. have a ton of time just to sit and chill right. and watch movies, but I'm, I'm going to be diving back in on Hannibal, the TV series again soon and just let that 
play through again. It's a beautiful show. And stuff. Oh, yeah. perfect. Talk about perfect. That show is absolutely Who, insane. Whoever thought we, we'd have to ask the question, who's a better Hannibal Lecter in our lifetime? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I so mean, many, and no one compares them. Right. It's so wild, right? Mm-hmm. There are so many iconic characters that have been played by different people over time, but it's almost like Macbeth, where you just right. accept that person is tied to that performance. Right. And we have all these incredible Hannibal Lecters. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's great. What about you? Myself, I, I've been taking in slowly the Haunting of Bly Manor, the fall mm. to the Honey Hill House, because I'm trying not to like rush through things. I'm like, what's the hurry? And I, I think when it comes to television and the, the binging thing, you don't enjoy or appreciate the single singular episode anymore. It's all a mm. rush to the end, and then you forget, and I'm trying to take in things better. But I, I started that one about halfway through. It's lovely. Mike Flanagan sure knows how to... Tell those human horror tales. And I've been watching Fargo. That one started up again. And I recently, I guess, Blu-ray review-wise, I did Batman Death and the Family, which mm. is the Death of Robin tale from like the late 80s. They adapted it. Oh, wow. And it's a, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. So, Interesting. Uh, back when they uh, released it, when they did the comic book story, they had a cliffhanger at the end of the third issue, and it was and they had a number to call where you could call to see if Robin lived or call to see if he died. He was tortured <laughs> by the Joker, and he he was an unpopular Robin. He, it was the guy who followed up Dick Grace and Jason Todd, oh. and so they voted to kill him. And that's when I started reading comics was that. So that was a big deal. And this, they do a choose-your-own-adventure, and there's seven different endings, and it's pretty fun. It's a short film, so it's not a long time. By the time you get through all the choices by going back, which they give you good options once you get to the end, you can go back to the choice you want. You don't have to suffer through the whole thing. It takes about a feature length time to get through if you want to do all of it, but it was kind of a fun experience. I don't know if I'll pop it in all the time. Like, oh, I want to go choose a Robin death, but they have some fun. (laughs) They have some fun spinning around in the mythology with things like the, the Jason Todd, if you certain things that happen to him, he becomes different characters in the Batman universe and things like that. And it's just kind of kind of a fun disc. I haven't got your haunting disc yet. I saw my cue to, to review here soon, but I've heard good things about that transfer. So, Oh man, it's and, great. And, and Debon and the, the a, interview. Yes. That's one of my favorite interviews ever. He is so he's the, I think I described it online on commenting on somebody's thing. Just saying that there, he speaks, uh, he talks about cinema with a real mm-hmm. poetry. It's really beautiful how he considers film and the way mm-hmm. he talks about this fairy tale that he told with that movie. So I'm really excited for people to see that interview and see a different side of a movie that I think is absolutely worth revisiting, no matter what your initial impression of it may have been. Right. Speaking to Hill House, uh, for example. <laughs> so it's tied into your comment, but. It, it really is. It's a incredibly adventurous, bold movie for what it was doing and ahead of its time with a lot of the effects. And there's a lot more practical than people know in it. And we tell the story behind that with his interview. So I, anyway, Excellent. I hope everybody digs that. Fair, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Like, I wasn't a big fan of that when I saw it in the theater, but I'm always, whenever he's come in, I'm like, I'm excited to revisit that again. I want to maybe, I'm a different person. It was like 20 totally. years ago. I, yeah. I, I change, my tastes change. I've learned more and I might find an angle I appreciate now that I never saw before. Like, there's Absolutely. more to a movie than just the first time you see it. It's yeah, totally. So that'll, that'll take care of us for today. Justin, thank you for joining me. And I had a marvelous time talking Carpenter and... 
all the Blu-ray stuff with you. So, <laughs> Sorry about the stories. Oh, no, no. Love those. Uh, what's the best way people can keep up with you? I think the most direct way is if you go to my site, which is just my name, justinbeam.com, I mm-hmm. think we have it set up so you can like subscribe to posts and that'll put post, like give you an email when something's posted. Okay. Otherwise on social media, just look me up. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I will always post updates on there when something's announced and been trying to do accompanying announcements on my site that tell a little bit of the story behind a release then too. Oh, excellent. So when, like when the Friday the 13th features were announced, I put a big thing up digging in on each one of them that I did and telling the story behind what happened with them and trying to do a lot more of that because there's stories behind this stuff too. And Mm -hmm. I think people will find it pretty interesting to hear about what it's like working with some of these amazing people. Thank you. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. You can find written work on YSOBlue.com. I'll be back tomorrow with 4K Blues Day. And until then, remember to keep the positivity in your online film discussion. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetersshow.com. show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.